Hello and welcome to Arts Talk Radio. I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you interviews as well as news and reviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, concentrating on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and everything in between or nearby. Arts Talk Radio Online. Features on the arts in English. Zoe Baus has been busy again this week and she'll be talking to Spanish artist David Marotto, who lives in Rotterdam. But we start with Amsterdam-based comedian Greg Shapiro reading the third extract from his book An American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. This week he tells us more about the early days of the Amsterdam comedy venue Boom Chicago and some of the comedians who've appeared there. chapter we just talked about Seth Myers. Next up, Pete Gross and the Junkie Bike. Peter Gross came over with Seth Myers in 1997, and yes, the Junkie Bike market was still alive and well. At one point the newspapers started reporting on it, and a Boom Chicago colleague was caught on camera on the front page of the Dutch newspaper Head Parole. They were doing an expose on the rampant sale of junkie bikes in Amsterdam, and they had a triptych of photos chronicling this sale with the faces blurred. But to anybody who knew Pete, it was obvious. That man was our colleague, Peter G. And the location was even right next to Boom Chicago in the Kortelaatse Dwarstraat. Now, Boom Chicago was not implicated, but we enjoyed referring to Pete as Peter G., Next up, Amber Ruffin as the boss. Amber first came over in 2004, and by then, Boom Chicago actors were performing for lots of corporate events. With corporate events in our own theater, we would have a certain amount of control. But with corporate events on location, the situation would frequently get out of control. And right from the start, Amber responded with her trademark over-enthusiasm. For corporate events on location, we used to rotate the job of contact person. We rotated in and out of each other's roles in casting our shows, so it seemed logical to rotate the role of corporate contact as well. Anyway, it seemed logical to us. But pretty soon we noticed a discernible difference in the way corporate clients reacted to me, a tall white male, and our female colleagues, or our black and female colleagues. There was once a series of corporate events we did for a telephone guide. Yes, in the 2000s, that was still a thing. Now, on that show, as it happened, Amber was the contact person. She'd made contact with the client by phone before the show. She'd coordinated our arrival time, and she ended with, see you there. 
Now, when we arrived, sure enough, the client did not see her there. Instead, he made eye contact with me, the tall white man. Would you like to see the stage? I looked straight at Amber and I said, I don't know. Let me check with your contact person who contacted you earlier. It wasn't the first time that this had happened, and I enjoyed deferring every time to Amber, who was on location, my boss. Now, most times the client would shake it off and say, oh, oh, you're Amber. Oh, right. We spoke on the phone. But this one client contact could not make that cognitive leap. He looked from me to my colleague, Tarek, a black man. Oh, are you the one I spoke to by phone? No, that was Amber. And then it dawned on him. And for that brief moment, and then for the rest of the day, he kept referring his questions just to me. I kept having to say, I don't know. I'm not the boss. It was super annoying. And now I can almost imagine how Amber must feel being black and female. But what I cannot imagine is how she manages to bounce back. In this case, she made a joke about the situation by creating a new name for our client, Scrunch Face. Because some poor people are born with a face that everybody just wants to scrunch. Next up, Ike Barinholtz and The Pole. Ike Barinholtz. He came to Amsterdam in 1999. On stage, he was known for playing the macho, likable doofus, and offstage, not much different. Ike was the one who introduced Real Life Fight Club to the late-night improv show in which Joe Canale would make jokes about Ike and Ike would try to punch Joe in the face. Ike was the one who put on a special backstage show once he discovered that farts were flammable. And Ike had pull. It was like for every new Dutch drug he discovered, his body invented a new pheromone that the Netherlands had never smelled before. Ike was at my wedding, and he was around when my little daughter was born. And now flash forward to the Boom Chicago 25th anniversary and my daughter now turning 18. Ike couldn't believe it. And at the after party, I saw my wife talking to the Myers family. My son was talking to Rob, my colleague Rob. And my daughter was talking to Ike. Part of me had a small heart attack. Um, does he know that she's not yet 18? But in fact, what I was witnessing was my daughter asking Ike, what is it like to work with Zac Efron? Ike replied, gee, I don't know. Let's ask him right now. And he texted Zac Efron while my daughter watched. He said... Hey, Zach, I'm here in Amsterdam where this girl wants to marry you. <laughs> Zach Efron texted back, awesome, tell her I say hi. And my daughter is still blushing. Next up, Jordan Peele and Zwarte Piet. Jordan Peele started his comedy career in Amsterdam in 2001. He was so young. By now, Jordan has won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for the 2016 film Get Out, and now I'm wondering how much inspiration he might have gotten from his time in Amsterdam. Now, it would be easy to make the joke that Jordan might have gotten inspiration from the amount of weed he smoked while he was in Amsterdam. So, yes, I'll go ahead and make that joke. Jordan smoked so much weed while he was in Amsterdam, he was like Cinderella. Every midnight, he would transform after 12 bongs. Now, a quick story about that. In 2002... Boom Chicago did a stage swap with Second City Theater in Chicago. In fact, that was where Jordan Peele first met Keegan-Michael Key at the improv set after the shows. 
Now, Boom Chicago wanted to bring all of our tech gear for video and effects because Second City didn't have that stuff then. That meant that each of us actors had to bring one check-in bag with clothes and one extra check-in bag with tech items like Beamer, Video Board, Signal Splitter. And then the moment came when Jordan Peele gave us his classic recipe for how to sleep on the flight. Weed. We all went outside at Skip Hole. That was the smoking section back then. Jordan said he'd got this strong indica weed and it's guaranteed to knock you out once you get in the plane. Or before we got in the plane, as it turned out. Pep, Rosenfeld, and I, we were together, both developing a kind of paranoid high right in time for the security check. And this was right after 9-11. So they had these interrogation stations set up before you'd even get to security. And sure enough, the first thing they asked was, did you pack your bags yourself? And for the first time ever, the answer was actually no. Now, we did our best to bluff our way through, but both of us were sweating bullets and the agent said, you look uh, rather nervous. Anything you would like to tell me? And that's when Pep confessed, yeah, our colleague gave us some weed uh, in the smoking section outside, and it was pretty strong. And so we learned a valuable lesson on that day. Your weed tolerance will never compete with that of Jordan Peele. Okay, back to Jordan's Oscar and the film Get Out. In this film, Jordan Peele's main character, Chris, is invited to leave his home go visit a bunch of white people, and feel like he's on stage the whole time. That pretty much sums up Jordan Peele's life in Amsterdam. Was Jordan the token black guy? Well, apparently he thought so, because in 2002, Boom Chicago hired Colton Dunn, also part African-American, and Jordan later revealed that he was afraid for his job, assuming that no comedy group would possibly want two black guys in the ensemble at the same time. Now, in the film Get Out, the bad guys aren't overt racists. In fact, they're progressives. And Dutch culture is famously progressive, tolerant, open, multi-ethnic, making it all the more jarring when you encounter Zwarte Piet for the first time, which Jordan did in 2001. I watched as Dutch folks insisted that Zwarte Piet is not intended to be racist, ignoring the effect that it may have on people of color. So that whole experience may have been inspiration for Bradley Whitford saying in Get Out, oh, I'd have voted for Barack Obama a third time if I could. There's a poster for Get Out with the tagline, just because you're invited doesn't mean you're welcome. Oddly enough, at the same time Jordan was winning his Oscar, the Dutch prime minister was running an election campaign ad called Celebrating Sinterklaas Doesn't Make You Racist. It was also in that campaign that the Dutch Prime Minister published an open letter to immigrants in the Netherlands with the phrase, if you don't like it here, get out. So there you have it, Nederland. You can claim partial credit for Jordan Peele's Oscar. All you have to do is admit that to some people, they really do experience Zwarte Piet as a little bit offensive. That was it for chapter two. If you want to hear more on this topic, guess what? There's an entire extra chapter in the book called The Great Svartapit Debate. I'm very proud of that chapter, and I hope you will check it out in the book, The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. If you want to hear more, check out the audiobook at storytell.nl, and if you want to buy the book itself, you can find it at hollandbooks.nl. 
Arts Talk Radio Online. Today with us on Arts Talk Radio, we have uh, David Maroto, who is originally from Spain, uh, but he is an artist who is now based in Rotterdam. David and I have been having a fascinating conversation about many aspects of his work, but I think perhaps we'll start with what is clearly a passion for David, um, and his focus is on what he describes as the artist's novel, and it's not perhaps exactly what it sounds like. So I think I'm going to turn over to you, David, and say, can you just explain quite briefly for the audience what you mean by this? Yes. Um, an artist novel is not exactly a novel that is written by a visual artist, as you may first be inclined to uh, think, but I use this term a little bit more specifically to refer to those instances in which an artist creates a novel, but um, as a medium in the visual arts, meaning that imagine an artist is creating an art project where you have um, sculpture, video installation, and a novel. So the novel is um, employed within an artistic discourse. And uh, so, of course, there are many questions that you follow if you accept a literary genre like the novel as, a, as an artistic medium. And those are the questions that um, are at the base of my research. Mm. Now, you've been focusing on this, if I've understood correctly, for over 10 years. And indeed, mm -hmm. you mentioned to me that your own PhD thesis or part of it is going to be launched as a novel, hopefully, uh, later this year in September, mm -hmm. right here mm -hmm. in The Hague, which, mm -hmm. which of course I'll watch with interest, but just perhaps you could give us a flavor of that if, if I was a person who thought, oh, I, I might be interested in reading such a thing, what, mm -hmm. what might they find? Uh, well, first of all, um, I have to say that the crossover between literature and the visual arts is, you know, it has a long history. If you think of poetry, for example, which is just another literary genre, there is no secret that there is visual poetry, concrete poetry, surrealist poetry. I mean, there is a long tradition. Um, but when it comes to the novel, it's a, it's a, it's a bit strange, but um, there is no knowledge uh, about it. There are no anthologies. There are no... Uh, exhibitions or there are no articles and no books. Um, I mean, not a, 10 years ago when I started my research. Now, in the last years, the situation is slowly changing. But for example, the only uh, bibliography that exists of artist novels is the one I'm making with Joanna Zielinska, my partner, in a project that we call The Book Lover. Now, uh, there was a moment that we felt that, yeah, we were creating this bibliography, a collection of artist novels, and also curating artist novels in exhibitions, in um, performance programs. But there was a moment that I felt we were still missing a theoretical base, a theoretical ground, because again, except one article that was published in 2010 by uh, Maria Fusco, I couldn't write any written account of even calling this by a name. <laughs> like, it's a practice that artists have been doing for decades, and yet there was no critical account of it. So uh, my PhD, uh, which I did in Edinburgh, in, in, in Scotland, has two elements. 50% of it is, um, say, um, uh, a theoretical essay. So it's, it, in that sense, it's a kind of conventional, uh, air quotes, uh, conventional mm. um, uh, thesis. And the other 50% is a novel, which, uh, because uh, during 
during my PhD, I commissioned a new artist novel to another artist in the context of the book lovers. I did that with Johanna, of course. And what I did was to write, uh, yeah, a narrative account of the process of creation of the artist novel I was creating. I, I hope that is clear. So on the one hand, we published an artist novel after two years of working with an artist who was creating it by means of performance and exhibition. And then one year later, I wrote an, a narrative account of the process of creation of that real actual artist novel. And so I wrote it uh, again, so almost in the form of a novel. A meta novel, a novel about a novel. You can call it like that. I don't call it meta novel, but yeah, I call it more is research, research written as a novel. So, um, so at the end, uh, well, I got my PhD and then I decided because, of course, you have a copy of your thesis, but uh, only one copy in the library of the university. Sure. You want people to read it. So I published it with uh, Moose Publishing. Um, and uh, it's been distributed. Um, so uh, we agreed to publish it in two parts, in two volumes that are sold together. But one is the theoretical element. Again, for the first time, a book published on the artist novel or written on the artist novel. And then the second part is the, is the novel. But again, it's part of the same research, only that one is written as an essay, the other one as a novel. And that we will uh, launch in Page Not Found in The Hague, like you said, in September. So we look forward to that. Now, just speaking a bit about distribution, you were also telling me earlier how you were recently in Stockholm, in Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, in April time. And indeed, you were in the process of creating, um, how shall we say this, almost going back to, to the Gutenberg-style press. Uh, you'd collected a group of interested audience members mm -hmm. and you were dictating uh, your novel to them mm -hmm. with the idea that they would then there would be copies created mm -hmm. by each audience member and in so every time you do a performance um, you will you will create more copies of, of your book could you just mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that because that also sounded like quite a, an interesting and, and fascinating mm -hmm. project Yes, pretty much like you said, the title of this piece is Not All of Me Will Die. Um, so it exists as a single handwritten manuscript that I wrote in, in a book, like hardcover. And then, um, well, I went through the whole publishing process. Like I work with a copy editor, I have an ISBN on the book and everything, except that instead of making copies by, you know, uh, going to a printer, as is usually the case, I decided to um, use performance as a means of publishing. And by that, I mean that I, every time I do this performance, uh, every uh, member of the audience will receive a blank book exactly like mine with hardcover and a pen. So the performance is very simple. I read out loud from my manuscript and I dictate the, 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 the novella. It's a short novel. Uh, so every person in the audience will write their own copy, which at the end of the performance they will own. It's their copy. So they don't pay with money, they pay with their time. Because of course it takes a little while to dictate a whole novella and to write it. Um, but this is a little bit like you said, pre-Gutenberg, pre like it's a little bit like medieval monks would uh, make copies of books, right? Like one would read out loud and the other one would copy. So the more times I do this performance, the more copies will be uh, uh, in circulation. Uh, so the idea, yes, I did a first edition in Stockholm in uh, INDEC, as the name of the art space. 
Uh, it is expected to have a second edition in uh, La Box. Uh, it's a gallery in Bourges in uh, France in, on 17 June. And maybe more will follow. Now, David, there's plenty of things we could we could talk about, and we have already been discussing many, many different interesting elements of art. But perhaps we could sort of finish off with with yet another discussion that we had about your feelings about um, the text again, but this time we're talking about the text that we often find uh, on the wall of a museum or art gallery that in some way interprets a piece of artwork for the viewer. And mm -hmm. you explained to me that you were hoping to to unwrap the artwork from such a text or to perhaps release it from the tyranny of, of the somewhat banal <laughs> text. So tell us a bit more about how you're wanting to, um, again, change the way perhaps that we experience a, a visit to a museum or an art mm -hmm. gallery. Yeah, I think it's part of uh, a, a kind of unquestionable part of the artistic experience when you go to see an art uh, exhibition or um, that um, there is always a text that is around the artwork and the text could be even the title of the piece is already a piece of text but the caption that you read the wall text uh, in a museum the handout uh, the the curatorial statement the um, or even the art history books that you read about Michelangelo or whatever, it's all text it's a, that constitutes a sort of context that Absolutely. enables you to appreciate something as artistic. Um, now, with the, you know, the, the reality of art is institutional. Art is institutional per se, it doesn't exist outside its own, let's call it art world. And the problem is that this institution has carried out some inertias when it comes to uh, producing this text that produces the context, and it has been delegated to um, a third agents, like art critics, uh, curators, art historians, art theoreticians. And unfortunately, over time, it has developed into a kind of jargon that pretends to be analytical, but is many times falling into the promotional, rather. And it's, um, it's using a, really a horrible language that um, more readily engages with uh, another theory than with the reality of the work itself, to the point that many times you could even replace a text written for an artist with another text written for another artist, and it still works. No one would notice the difference. No, now, now they will notice because <laughs> yeah, there is this little engagement with the real, with the reality of the artwork in the world. So it is kind of prescribing the meaning of the work to the audience. Also, it's something that I don't agree with. So uh, yeah, in my more recent practice, I'm trying not to get rid of the text because I don't think that's actually possible. But I'm trying to replace that written text with orally delivered. So I'm trying to ask uh, creators not to write anything when if i'm part of a group show i want to show the work, my work without text but this text is delivered i don't i don't hide it there is a reason why i make these things and i believe in this contextualization and uh, but this can be done again by means of performance uh, sometimes i do it myself sometimes i collaborate with a performer um so it's not about reciting a script it's not the point of the performer is not to remember a text it's more to think and to think in, in real time in front of the audience and to talk. It's, it's a little bit, I, I take my inspiration from David Antin's um, talk poems um, in which he was, it was a kind of a spoken essay with poetic and narrative elements to it. And, uh, and the way it comes out, um, well, it's, you know, 
it's in the context of the installation of the artwork I'm showing. And, and, and of course, that enables, and, and you know, if you are there with the audience, um, that enables a different experience because maybe the, somebody in the audience will know more about what is being said than the performer himself or herself. Uh, so that could create a, a situation where the artist has to learn from the audience or mm. questions that the audience, normally when you have a written text, you cannot ask questions to the text. I mean, you can, but you will get no answer because writing, writing is a technology that allows us to uh, communicate um, throughout time and space. But that means that the author doesn't mean to be present there. Uh, when you speak, you have to be present. You are there. The author is present. So it creates a totally different uh, experience of the work. And um, well, I'm, I'm trying to um, experiment with that format. And well, it's not a format yet, but it, I wanted it to become a format, really, so that the agent of the work is part of the work. That's what I'm trying and to do. And there's a bit more dynamism and interaction involved in the interpretation of, of, of an artwork, perhaps. Yeah, and, and it provides a, an experience that I hope is more memorable than a handout text that you barely read or pay attention to. Mm. Um, you know, you are in front of somebody for maybe 30 minutes uh, mm. telling you, um, you know, things that maybe you connect with or not, but, you know, operating at different levels is not only an analytical text. Uh, there could be, you know, elements that are more subjective that appeal to, you know, elements of desire, of memory, of uh, fantasy, uh, etc. Okay, David, I think that is sadly all we have time for today. Uh, mm -hmm. I know, as I said before, there, there are plenty of other initiatives that you have going. And um, certainly if, if, if our listeners want to know more, um, of course, they can, they can find your work, um, David Maroto. Um, I've, I've just been onto your, to your website. There's a, there's a lot of fascinating um, projects that, that you've worked on and that you are working on. So thank you once more for joining us today on Arts Talk Radio. Say, if I can say, is davidmaroto.info, please, not .com. .com is somebody else. Is dot info, please. Uh, All right. because otherwise, uh, people might be misguided to uh, a photographer who has my own name. Oh, sometimes. okay. No. All right. That's good to know. Well, well. Thank you so much, David. And we hopefully look forward to the launch of your of your um your book in in September mm -hmm. time. And uh, all the best. Thank you very much. <laughs> Folks, if you're looking for a great, great publication, Arts Talk Magazine. They talk about the arts, and it is so great, bigly. It's the only news that is not fake. That was Zoe Baus talking via Zoom, hence the poor quality, to Rotterdam-based Spanish artist David Marotto. Arts Talk Radio Online. Well, I'm afraid we've come to the end of another edition of Arts Talk Radio. We'll be back in a week or so with some more interesting people to talk to. And in the meantime, if you have any comments we'd like to hear from you, please leave them in the comments box below. My name is Michael Hasted, and so until the next time, it's goodbye. Bye. Bye.